Thanks for checking out this week's podcast from Center Street Church. We pray it blesses, encourages, and inspires you. Well, welcome to all of you here at uh, Central Campus, as well as those of you who are joining us online, and uh, those of you who are meeting together at one of our regional campuses in Airdrie, in Bridgeland, in South Calgary, and uh, in Crowfoot, Northwest Calgary. So how about our Calgary Flames? Yes. Right on. The, 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 the comeback kids did what many people thought was impossible, not only making the playoffs, but now defeating the Vancouver Canucks in six games. Man, that's so good. Next up are the Anaheim uh, Mighty Ducks. Now, um, I'm told Calgary hasn't won a game against them in 20 games. Not exactly an encouraging statistic. But you know, given the way this year has gone for the Flames, that can mean only one thing. They're going to win the series. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, uh, you know, speaking of the series, we're in a series of messages in which we're exploring what Christians believe. And presently we're examining what the Bible teaches about our enemy, Satan, and how we can live in victory over him by putting on the armor of God. You see, whether you realize it or not, the Bible teaches that we are in a spiritual battle. In other words, every time you find yourself uh, wrestling with making a choice between generosity or greed, every time you find yourself battling between purity and lust, or between faith and fear, or between integrity and inhonesty, dishonesty, there are unseen forces at work whispering lies and half-truths and seeking to deceive you into making ungodly choices. And Jesus affirmed the reality of this cosmic battle when he said in John chapter 16, verse 33, he said, in this world, you will have trouble. However, Jesus went on to say this, but take heart, I have overcome the world. And the passage of scripture we're looking at again today uh, spells out how we can win the battle Uh, and live in victory through Jesus Christ. And so I'm going to invite you to open up your Bibles to Ephesians, the sixth chapter, and then to stand and to join me in reading a portion of this chapter together. Starting to read from verse 13. Therefore, put on the full armor of God, so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground, and after you have done everything, to stand. Stand firm, then, with the belt of truth buckled around your waist, with the breastplate of righteousness in place, and with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. In addition to all this, take up the shield of faith, with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation, and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, again, we thank you for your Word. And Lord, the reminder in this passage we just read that that, um, this spiritual battle that we've been talking about is for real. This isn't just a figment of our imagination. Lord, we are in a truly cosmic spiritual battle. 
There are forces at work that want to defeat us and destroy us. And Lord, I pray that we as the people of God would understand this and, and live with the awareness of it. We also ask now you would teach us what it means to clothe ourselves with the armor of God. And Lord, that you would open our minds to your truth, that you would soften our hearts, and then you would give us the will and the courage to respond in whatever way you'd have us to. For we pray it in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. You may be seated. In his book, Mountain Rain, James Fraser recounts a time in his life when he served as a missionary to a particular tribe in inland China. And James began his ministry with high hopes that large numbers of people in this particular tribe would come to faith in Jesus Christ. And even though the people were warm and hospitable, they simply were not interested in his Jesus. About five years later, James was both, was both perplexed and discouraged. And a strange shadow began to fall over his spiritual life. At first he thought it was because he missed those that he'd left behind, or perhaps because of the physical discomforts that he had to endure. But over time, he began to realize that there was something dark and sinister at work in his life. He had moments when he was overwhelmed with deep doubts. Like your prayers are not being answered, are they? No one wants to hear your message, do they? You've invested five years of your life and there's not much to show for it, is there? You thought that you were called to be a missionary. Are you sure? Or was it pure imagination? You better leave it all. Go back and just admit it was a big mistake. Day after day, night after night, he wrestled with thoughts like this. Well, fortunately, James eventually realized that these were not his own thoughts. These were being imposed upon him by the enemy. And through insights that he gleaned from others, he eventually found victory over this demonic assault. Now, I'm wondering if you can relate it all to what James experienced. Have you ever wondered whether you actually heard from God on a major decision you made where you're second-guessing yourself? Have you ever felt overwhelmed with feelings that you just wasted a year or more of your life engaged in a wrong pursuit? Have you ever, ever hated who and what you are, felt useless, incompetent? Have you ever found yourself debilitated with the fear of failure to the point where you could hardly function, to the point you just wanted to run away from it all? Have you ever thrown up your hands and said, you know, what's the use, and wanted to walk away from the faith or the church? Have you ever been tempted to just go ahead and satisfy your lustful desires because nothing's going to change anyways? You know, church, many of us just assume that these thoughts are our own. And yet often they're signs of the devil's activity. Now, in the passage we just read a moment ago, the Apostle Paul talks about this cosmic battle, that it is a real battle. The reality is Satan will try to deceive us 
or discourage us or distract us in any way that he can. And, and the Apostle Paul says here in Ephesians 6, the key to victory over these uh, assaults of the enemy is found in putting on the spiritual armor of God every day in the same way that a Roman soldier puts on his armor every day. The first way to resist Satan, which we looked at last week, but the first way to resist Satan is to put on the belt of truth each morning. When you put on the belt of truth, you are saying, Jesus, you are the truth. You hold everything together, and you are my ultimate authority. I am committed to aligning my life with your life and with your mission today. The second way to resist Satan is to put on the breastplate of righteousness each morning. When you put on the breastplate of righteousness, you're saying, Jesus, you are my righteousness. I am righteous and acceptable to God, not because of what I've done or because I'm living a perfect life. No, I am righteous because you, Jesus, are righteous. You are perfect and acceptable to God. And I am in you, and you are in me. Out of my love and my gratitude to you, Lord Jesus, I intend to live a God-pleasing life today. A third way to resist Satan is to put on the shoes of peace. When you put on the shoes of peace each morning, you're not only saying, Jesus, you are the truth. You're not only saying, Jesus, you are my righteousness. But you're saying, Jesus, you are the source of my peace. I'm at peace with God. I'm at peace with others only because of the peace that you came to bring. Please make me an instrument of your peace today. And so with that review of the first three pieces of armor, let's move on now to the remaining three pieces. The fourth piece of armor that Paul talks about is the shield of faith. Look at verse 16. In addition to all this, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. So what are these flaming arrows of the evil one? Well, the flaming arrows that Satan uses are primarily doubt and fear to convince us that God can't be trusted, to convince us that his word and the promises in his word aren't true. This is Satan's ultimate objective, to rob you of faith in God. When you rob a person of their faith in God, do you know what you have left? Doubt and fear. After Adam and Eve sinned in the garden, fear became the dominant force in their lives. In Genesis 3.10, Adam said this to God after he sinned. He said, I was afraid. The faith he had in his heart turned to fear. And yet this is not the way God intended for Adam and Eve uh, to live their lives or for us to live our lives. He invites us to put our faith in him. When flaming arrows of fear and doubt are coming at you, you need to hold up the shield of faith. Now, a Roman's soldier's shield was made of iron and was large enough, typically two feet by four feet, for a soldier to kind of crouch behind for protection. It was covered with layers of leather um, on its face, which was soaked in water before a battle. 
in order to not only absorb the arrow, but also to extinguish the fire of that arrow as well. And so what does it mean to take up the shield of faith? Well, when I take hold of the shield of faith, I'm making two declarations. First of all, that God and his word can be trusted. And secondly, that I need the support of other Christians in my life. Let me unpack those for us a bit. First of all, I'm declaring that God and his word can be trusted. That in all things, he has my best interest at heart. Whether I have evidence of that now in my life or not. Now it's important to point out that the faith being referred to here is not faith in faith. Faith is not having a positive mental attitude. It is not having a belief in a force or in a formula. Faith is not believing that I can accomplish anything that I put my mind to. True faith is not faith in our words. It is not faith in ourselves, nor is it faith in our faith. No, true faith is in God. He is the object of our faith. Now, wouldn't you agree that it is difficult putting your trust in someone that you don't know? On the positive side, the more you get to know someone, do you realize the more you can trust them? Well, here's the thing. The more you know God in his word, the larger your shield of faith will become to absorb the flaming arrows of the enemy. Conversely, the less you know God and his word, the smaller your shield of faith will be and the easier it will be for the Satan's flaming arrows to hit you and to discourage and to defeat you. So how do we grow in our faith in God? Well, first of all, we grow in our faith in God by knowing and living out the word of God. Romans 10, 17 says, Faith comes from hearing the message, and the message is heard through the word about Christ. Faith comes by hearing, by meditating, and by acting on God's word. Fear, on the other hand, comes from hearing and meditating and acting on the lies of Satan. The more you meditate on fear, the more you obsess and worry the more fear will grow in your life. On the other hand, the more you meditate on the word of God and the promises of God, the more you study and memorize the scriptures, the more your shield of faith will grow and protect you from the flaming arrows of the evil one. Furthermore, we enlarge our shield of faith when we step out in obedience to the leading of God. Hebrews 11.6 says that without faith... It's impossible to please God. In other words, God doesn't want us just to believe in him the way we believe in so many different things or people. He doesn't just want us to believe in him. He wants us to believe him. To trust him. Those of you who are parents, you know the difference of, 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 of a child that kind of believes it, believes believes in you and the difference of a child that believes 
you and what you say. This is what God wants from us. And the primary way that he accomplishes this is by setting before us some kind of challenge and then calling us to trust him and to step out in faithful obedience. He may call us to step out and to give leadership to a ministry or to a small group or in some other capacity. He may call us to step out and serve in some way. He may call us to step out and reach out to a neighbor or to have a spiritual conversation with someone at work. I mean, the, 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 the options are endless. And when we pray and we step out in faith in response to his call, and then we see him show up in that situation, we see his faithfulness and his power at work firsthand, guess what happens? Our faith in him grows. We grow closer to him. Our shield of faith grows as a result because our trust in him has grown. Now in Numbers 13, the children of Israel are, are at the border of the promised land. And they're about to enter into the land that God has promised would be theirs one day, a land referred to as flowing with milk and honey. God instructed Moses to select 12 of his best leaders and to go behind enemy lines and spy on the land that they were about to enter. And when they return, like most committees, they can't agree on what they should do next. Ten of the spies said, we know that God wants us to trust him and to possess this land. But man, to do that would be suicide. I mean, there are giants in that land. They'll squash us like bugs if we invade their country. Now, the other two spies, Caleb and Joshua, they said, hold it, everyone. Sure, there are giants in their hills. But God has promised to give this land to us. So we say, let's trust him and move forward with what he's told us to do. Well, instead of believing God and stepping out in faith, the people believe the majority report and they begin to lose faith. They panic. They begin to grumble and complain. And in the end, they just refuse to press forward any further. In fact, they want to go back to Egypt, to the slavery of Egypt. And as a result, God determined that this generation of people would not enter the land. They spent the next 38 years wandering around in circles in the wilderness until they'd all died off, until their adult children had taken their place in the adult community. It's a very sobering account in Israel's history. The story of a group of people who were provided an open door of opportunity to grow in their faith, to be blessed by God, and they missed it. It's a sober reminder of what happens when we refuse to trust God and just play it safe in life to take the easy road. Instead of experiencing high adventure and God's best for us, not to mention a close relationship with him as a result, we spend the rest of our lives distant from God and just putting in time, going through the motions of life, essentially wandering around the wilderness. Well, God says to us, I don't want you wasting your life playing it safe, living for lesser things, missing the high adventure of growing closer to me. I want you to grow in your faith in me. And so I'm asking you to trust me and to step through the door that I've opened up before you.
Now make no mistake, when you contemplate stepping through the door that God's opened before you, you will experience fear. Please understand that. But does that mean that you don't have any faith? Well, not necessarily. You see, you can have fear and faith at the same time. Faith is not the absence of fear or the absence of doubt. No, faith is moving ahead in spite of the fear or the doubt. Psalm 56 verse 3 says, When I am afraid, I put my confidence in God. Living by faith is feeling the fear, having the doubts, but obeying the Lord anyways, because your confidence is in Him. You see, the only time that fear and doubt are serious problems is when they stop you from doing what God's actually called you to do. When they convince you to not trust God, to not go through the door that the Lord's opened for you. A faith that pleases God is a faith like Caleb and Joshua. I mean, do you think that they didn't see the giants in that land? I mean, do you think that they showed up and forgot to wear their contact lenses when they spied out that land? No, Joshua and Caleb didn't ignore the facts. They didn't pretend that there wasn't a problem. But on the other hand, they didn't dwell on the problem either the way that the other ten spies did. Instead of being fixated on the problem, they chose to focus their attention on the problem solver. They didn't just see the giants, you see. They saw God beyond the giants. And folks, that's what it means to take hold of the shield of faith. It's not just believing in God. It's believing God. It's trusting him and his word completely. And so as we grow in our faith in the Lord, our shield will grow as well. And the flaming arrows of the enemy will not affect us. And then secondly, when we take hold of the shield of faith, we're also declaring that we need the support of other Christians in our lives. You see, the edges of a Roman soldier's shield were so constructed that an entire line of soldiers, sometimes a thousand feet wide, could interlock shields and march into the enemy like a solid wall, one step at a time. And what that suggests is the importance of linking our lives with other Christians, resisting the enemy, and protecting one another by supporting and encouraging one another. Hebrews 10, 24 says, And let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together, as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day approaching, the day of the Lord's return approaching. You know, years ago, when I walked through the valley of the shadow of death, there were some days that I was just overwhelmed by fear. Satan's flaming arrows were coming at me from everywhere. And they were finding their mark. 
because my shield of faith was down. I can't tell you how encouraging and how strengthening it was for, for me to have hundreds of people from our church take their shields of faith and surround me and my family and pray prayers that we just couldn't pray anymore and claim promises that we'd lost sight of. You know, friend, if, if you aren't close to at least a small group of other believers, I just want to challenge you to begin to pray about that and that God would help you toward that end, help you to find such a group of individuals. It's absolutely critical. In fact, you know, you read the scripture. There, there's so many things, particularly in the New Testament, that, that you can't do unless you're part of the body of Christ. So become part of the body. Get connected. Don't live a solo Christianity. God never intended you to. You see, we need to understand that it is the Lord and his church that is our shield. And that shield is only effective if we stay close to it. The more distance between you and the shield of the Lord and the church, the more vulnerable to attack you become. You know, in a war where there are real bullets flying everywhere, anyone who values their life will not venture out into the open, unprotected places. They won't venture into enemy territory. And yet, over the years, I have observed Christians wander away from the Lord and his church and follow through with their own plans. Follow through with their own desires and their own passions. You know, going to do it my way. Wander off into enemy territory. And then a few months or a few years later, they come back. And they're all shot up by the enemy. And they're wondering why their life is in shambles. Now, I've been at Center Street now for 34 years. And one of the good things of being here my entire ministry is I have the joy of welcoming home and praying with those who years ago walked away from the Lord. Some cases were angry at me or angry at something I said in a sermon and walked out the door. But over time, came to realize that doing it their way wasn't working. It was only leading to greater pain and confusion in their life and they need to get right with God. They need to reconnect with his bride, the church. And what a joy it was for me and has been for me. As, you know, over the years, as a number of people have come back home, made their life right with Christ. It's wonderful. You know, friends, Jesus is our shield of faith. But if we want his protection, we need to take hold of it. We need to stay close to him. And we need to stay close to his bride, the church. Okay, so let's go on to the fifth piece of God's spiritual armor, represented by the Roman soldier's helmet. Again, look at verse 16. It says, Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. Now, the purpose of the helmet, of course, is to protect the head from injury. You know, we read a lot, at least more recently, I've been reading and hearing a lot that hockey players' helmets aren't doing the job. In fact, they're 
they're very poor at doing what they're supposed to do. Um, they're not protecting the head from, from injury. And physically, if a person's head is injured, the rest of the body will soon malfunction. Well, the same holds true in spiritual matters. The head represents the mind. And whoever has control of the mind controls the person. Now, James 1.8 warns that a double-minded person is unstable in all that they do. To be double-minded is to live with two minds. One part believes truth. The other part believes Satan's lies. One part serves the eternal purposes of God. The other part serves counterfeit gods. One part trusts God. The other part doubts the goodness of God. Now, Mark Bubick points out that Satan seeks to control our minds. I mean, that's his goal. But even if he can't accomplish that, he's quite content to take the part that we let him have. He knows he can get, if he can get part of your mind, he'll get a lot more as time goes on. And so the key, therefore, is to put on the helmet of salvation. Now, salvation, what is it? Well, salvation is a person. And that person is Jesus Christ. You see, Jesus, or Yahshua, in the Hebrew language, means salvation. In Acts 4.12, Peter said about Jesus that salvation is found in no one else. Jesus is our salvation. And therefore, when we put on the helmet of salvation, what we're really doing is we're putting on the mind of Christ. So what does it mean to put on the mind of Christ or the helmet of salvation? Well, first of all, putting on the mind of Christ is letting the Holy Spirit renew your mind. Romans 12 verse 2 says, Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by renewing, by the renewing of our mind. When you become a Christian, the Holy Spirit invades your life. And as you surrender control of your life over to him, he will begin to transform your life and your character into the likeness of Jesus Christ. As you read, as you meditate, memorize and study the scriptures, you will increasingly think like Jesus. You will increasingly see life and your circumstances from God's perspective. And as a result, you'll be able to discern the lies of the devil. Furthermore, putting on the mind of Christ means that you fill your mind with God-pleasing thoughts. The best way to keep Satan's thoughts out is to keep Jesus' thoughts in. Thoughts that make Jesus smile. Thoughts that are true, that are pure, that are right, that are lovely, that are excellent and praiseworthy. Now, if we wish to fill our minds with God-pleasing thoughts, then we need to take control of the thoughts that take up residence in our minds or that want to take up residence in our minds. And 2 Corinthians 10.5 says it this way, we demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God and we take captive 
every thought to make it obedient to Christ. The Apostle Paul uses a very aggressive language here to communicate that putting on the mind of Christ is taking very decisive action against any thoughts or ideas that are contrary to the heart of Christ. Now, people that fall into affairs, and I've talked with many of them, they will tell you the exact moment when they simply gave in to a thought. They allowed it to take up permanent residence. And a relationship went from friendship to something else like that. And they can pinpoint when it happened. The reality is our thoughts, our minds are bombarded with all kinds of ungodly messages on a daily basis. In what we read, through the media, even people that we spend time with. For example, if you're married and you spend a lot of time watching television, which has been shown to communicate a low view of marriage, someone referred to it as a drug with a plug. Um, so if you're watching a lot of television and you're also spending a lot of time with people who have a low view of marriage, well, don't be surprised if your view of marriage begins to decline. Don't be surprised if you suddenly start feeling more negative about your own marriage because your mind's fill, being filled up with you know, the, the, the thoughts of people around you and the thoughts coming at you from the drug with the plug that's messing with you. All that to say that who we hang out with and what we expose our minds to impacts our thinking and our convictions in life. While we can't avoid ungodly thoughts from entering our minds completely, we can avoid them moving into our minds and taking up permanent residence. When a thought comes along, we need to test it. Someone said we need to frisk it <laughs> at the door of our minds. We need to check it out using Philippians 4.8 as our guide. Is it true? Is it honorable? Is it pure? Is it lovely? Is it right? Is it admirable? Is it excellent and praiseworthy? And if it isn't, then slam the door. Flush it. In Jesus' name, send it to where Jesus would send it. Refuse to entertain it any further. Realize the destructive potential of thoughts that don't fit this criteria. And then finally, we come to the last piece of spiritual armor, the sword of the Spirit. While the first five pieces of armor are defensive in nature, the sword of the Spirit has both defensive and offensive purposes. Here in Ephesians 6.17, the Apostle Paul says, Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. Now when Paul talks, says here, the sword is the word of God, he's not referring to the logos or God's general word. He's using the word rhema here, which 
means God's specific word. The sword of the Spirit is that specific word that God gives by supernatural revelation or through the scriptures to fight off the accusations of the enemy. Many years ago now, I was blamed for something I didn't do. And when the evidence surfaced that someone else was at fault, something in my flesh wanted to make my accuser pay. And I can remember the thought flashing through my mind, which I'm convinced was from Satan, that I was justified. I was in the right to do so. But then I got a rhema. I got a specific word from the Lord from Ephesians chapter 4, verse 23, 32, rather, which says, Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ God forgave you. You see, the sword of the Spirit sliced and diced Satan's sinister temptation that came to me and prevented further conflict and hurt in that particular situation. And so when I take up the sword of the Spirit, I'm committing myself to reading and to meditating and memorizing the Scriptures so that I know the Bible well enough to use the sword of the Spirit against the enemy when he attacks. I mean, when Jesus was in the wilderness and Satan tempted him, Jesus didn't say, oh, just give me a second here, you know, and, and, and pull out his iPhone or, you know, pull out a bunch of scrolls and start flipping through saying, no, no just, just hold on a second, I'll be with you in a second here. I've got to find this verse here somewhere. No. He responded to Satan immediately because he had the word memorized. And so when we take up the sword of the Spirit, it's important that we know the Bible well enough to use the sword against the enemy when he attacks. Psalm 119.11 says, I have hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. The more you know the scriptures, and in particular, have memorized the scriptures, the more effective your use of the sword of the Spirit will be. Now, this doesn't mean that, that you have to memorize the whole Bible. Some people say, well, does that mean I've got to memorize the whole Bible? Well, if you can, go for it. I think it's great. But it may be wise to begin, mem- to begin memorizing those scriptures that address areas in your life that you're struggling with the most, the areas that Satan's attacking you the most. And so, for example, if you're struggling with impatience and Satan just loves to attack you in that area, well, memorize some verses that speak to that. If you're struggling with overspending or unwise spending, I've given my wife Gwen several verses to memorize on that particular issue. <laughs> I'm just kidding. She's, she's very frugal. She really is, as long as she doesn't have a credit card. Anyways, um, <laughs> just kidding. I'm in trouble now. Okay. But seriously, whatever you're struggling with, you know, be it anger, be it lust, be it worry, whatever, Sharpen your, sh- your sword. Sword. I'm all messed up now. Anyways. Uh, sharpen your sword by memorizing verses that speak to those areas. Secondly, when you take up the sword of the Spirit, you are speaking aloud 
God's truth. You see, while it is important to know God's truth and to believe it, when it comes to spiritual warfare, it is critical to speak it out loud. And here's why. Unlike God, Satan is not all-powerful, he's not all-knowing, and he's not everywhere present. I like the story of seven-year-old Billy who hadn't learned yet that God was everywhere present. He and his classmates were lined up in a cafeteria at their Christian school, and at the front of the table was a large pile of apples. And beside the apples was a large sign which said, Take only one. God is watching. Well, moving through the line to the other end of the table was a large pile of chocolate chip cookies. And Billy turned to a couple of his friends and said, you know, hey, take all the cookies you want. God's watching the apples. (laughs) Well, the truth is God is everywhere. He's everywhere present and he knows your thoughts. Satan, on the other hand, does not. Even though Satan understands human nature pretty well and likely has a good idea of of what we're thinking, the reality is he is not all-knowing and therefore he really doesn't know what we're thinking. And so if we're going to confront his accusations and his lies with Scripture, we need to do so out loud. We need to read Scripture out loud. We need to sing Scripture out loud. We need to pray Scripture out loud because it defeats him. For example, when people have shared with me how they have anxiety attacks at night, I've encouraged them to read or to quote Bible verses out loud before they go to sleep. Scriptures that speak about our position, our authority in Jesus Christ. Scriptures that speak about the freedom that is ours through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And many have responded back to me that they've been set free by doing so. You see, Satan is the father of lies. I mean, that's who he is. And so he can't stand to hear the truth of God, the sword of the Spirit. He has to leave. Hebrews 4.12 says, For the word of God is alive and is active, sharper than any double-edged sword. You know, on the one edge, it not only challenges and encourages us and convicts us of sin, but when it's spoken out loud to Satan, it cuts him down and his accusations. You know, every person needs to ask themselves this question. What's going to be the authority in my life? When it comes down to it, you have only two options. The world or the word of God. Will you build your life on what our culture says or on what Jesus Christ says? It's the world or the word. The power to defeat the enemy is found in Jesus, the living word, and in the Bible, the written word. But we can't defeat the enemy if we don't know Jesus or his word. And I just want to say that if you don't know Jesus personally, 
then you are on your own against Satan. And friend, that is not a good place to be because in ourselves we are powerless against the enemy. But with Christ, we have all we need to live in victory and freedom over him. Jesus is the way to true freedom. He is the way to victory over the enemy. And if you would like to begin a friendship with him, please talk to me after the service or one of our prayer partners here after the service. Now, those of us who are Christ followers, if we're going to know Jesus and get to the place where we don't just believe in him but actually believe him, if we're going to get to the place where we actually know his word better, it will mean that we will need to make time daily to be alone with Jesus and to be in his word. It will mean meeting with other Christians and not only discussing what it says, but challenging each other to be and to do what it says. It will mean making worship times and teaching the teaching of God's word like this. A priority in our lives, not a once-in-a-while event. And in the lives of our youth, in our children, and if necessary, cutting back on other activities. So there you have it. God's armor for the daily battle. You put it on daily, and your life will be characterized by victory, freedom and peace rather than discouragement defeat and chaos in a moment we're going to move into a time of partaking of the Lord's Supper and as we do I just want to remind us that everything that we need to stand up to the assaults of the enemy including our position and authority in Christ the power of the Holy Spirit living and residing within us the armor of God available to put on every day. Everything we need to live in freedom and victory in this life and to live forever in the next life has been made available to us because Jesus made it because of the, of the, the death and the resurrection of our Lord Jesus. Colossians 2.13 says it so well. When you were dead in your sins, do you remember when you were dead in your sins? Do you remember what life was like before you embraced Jesus? When you were dead in your sins, God made you alive with Christ. Talk about cause for praise. He made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all of our sins, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness which stood against us and condemned us before holy God. He has taken away, he's nailed it to the cross and having disarmed the powers and the authorities he made a public spectacle of them triumphing over them by the cross you know when Jesus hung upon the cross beaten and wounded rejected despised naked before the world in that moment all the powers of hell and darkness were howling with glee and the cross looked like the supreme achievement of the devil. The supreme moment of victory for the dark side. But it was at that very moment when Jesus said, It is finished. It is finished. When the devil lost 
In the cross, all that the devil had risked was defeated. It was beaten down. And the devil and his demons were disarmed and openly made a spectacle of by the power of Jesus Christ. Church, because of Christ's sacrifice on the cross and his resurrection, not only has Satan been disarmed, making his accusations against us harmless, but by his grace through faith, we are one with Christ, children of the King of kings and Lord of lords. And friends, that is why he is worthy of all our praise. That is why he's worthy of our worship and our full devotion each moment of every day. That is why we must, we must not take his sacrifice on the cross for granted. And that's why we celebrate communion. To remember and give thanks and to praise our Lord and our Savior for his amazing love and grace and sacrifice on the cross so that we might be reconciled and restored in our relationship with our Heavenly Father. To him be all the praise and glory forever and ever. Would you bow your heads and would you close your eyes? Our Heavenly Father, we just praise you today for being the all-powerful, all-knowing, everywhere-present God who is both our Lord and King, but also our friend. We thank you for your faithfulness, your mercy, your grace, for saving us from our sins, loving us despite our failures and sin. Lord, we long to be in close relationship with you, and so we would ask that you would forgive us for those times we've gone our way rather than your way. Those times, Lord, we've just taken you for granted. We've gone about our day and you haven't been part of our thoughts. Forgive us, Lord, for not involving you in our day. Cleanse us from sin. Renew us by your Holy Spirit that we may perfectly love you and magnify your holy name. Bless and sanctify with your word and spirit these gifts of bread and the fruit of the vine. Lord, that we receiving them may be partakers of the divine nature through Jesus Christ our Lord, who taught us when we pray to say, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. And now may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you his precious peace. In the name of God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thanks for listening. We hope this message has impacted you. We'd like to challenge you to take it one step further and get connected. 
For any questions or prayer, please visit our website at cschurch.ca. You can also like us on Facebook or follow us on Twitter.